0: Hello, everybody. Can you all hear me very well? Oh, good. Perfect. Cool. So Matthew is going to join us in, um, in a minute. You can also sh- uh, see the screen, I believe. Hi Yanni, hi Kercy, hi Johan. Yes, you can see the screen perfect. Yeah. So um, Matthew's gonna join us in one minute. Um, what we'll do is that we'll just like quickly uh introduce Matthew for those uh, of you who don't know him, and then we'll get uh we'll dive right in. We've 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 uh, yeah. selected a bunch of questions and um yeah, Matthew is gonna go deep uh, into into some of those questions. Yeah. And before we start, um, yes, I'm recording this. Before I, before we start, can I just please ask you to all um, mute yourself? Because there's gonna be a bunch of people on the call today, that's that's probably gonna be one of our rec- record webinars, so we, we should probably have like 150 to 200 people on the call, so please make my life easier please mute yourself Hey, Matthew. Are you in?
1: I am indeed. Can you cool. hear me?
0: okay? Yeah. Very good. Perfect. So yeah, yeah. We can also see you. You can see the screen. So yeah, um, let's let's start then. Okay. Uh, people will uh, um, keep joining us, but I think we can we can already start. Um, thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us today. We have a very very special guest today. Who drove a lot of people to the to the webinar. So thank you, Matthew, for uh, taking the time. Um, and yeah, I thought you could just introduce yourself quickly, briefly, I've added a couple of points uh, about you and then we'll dive right in, okay?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, my name's Matthew Housebarby. I've been at HubSpot now for nearly five years. Uh, my, my background has been initially that I came into HubSpot to grow and build at the time our seo team and now i'm the director of the acquisition team which encompasses the seo team as part of that um along with some of our other acquisition marketing groups so things like our product growth team our um affiliate team acquisition growth things like that so Prior to my time at HubSpot, I was in the agency world. Uh, I'm based right now out of London, um, fully remote, and alongside. Um, but well, prior to HubSpot, I was I was based out of the UK. But I uh, I spent time in our Dublin office. I've been based over in Boston in the US for about two and a half years uh, from uh, last year and uh alongside this i've kind of been very much the majority of my earlier career was spent within seo and do a lot within seo right now um obviously running the seo team here at hubspot is a big part of that uh i also run uh, a pretty large seo kind of training uh community called traffic think tank um which is another area that i spend Kind of a bit of my time focused on um, educating around SEO. So a bit of background into, into myself. I'm sure you'll be able to check out some of the stuff that I've written. You can check out Traffic Think Tank. But uh, if you like Bertrand, I can, I can start jumping into some of the questions.
0: Yeah, so, um, what I've done is that I've, um, I've added the questions to the slide. Um, wasn't sure everybody would understand my, my accent. So let's dive in the first one. So uh, just, just to, to, to explain and, um, to give you more details around what we're going to be talking about. You, you, you guys have asked a lot of questions. Basically we've grouped those questions into kind of three main categories. The first one being very generic. What is the co today? That's. That's the first question. Second part of the questions will be around cluster topic. A lot of questions were asked about this and then it was more about like duplicated content and, and everything. So these are kind of the three categories uh, that we have. And let's start with the first one. How would you
1: describe what SEO is today? Yeah, nice uh a nice broad one to kick us off with. Um I'll try and I'll try and get through as many of these questions as possible uh, throughout the the hour that we have. Um and I'll I'll always kind of do my best online to to follow up with stuff as well. But just to kind of kick things off, so um I know this is somewhat broad, but what I thought would be useful in in talking about here is I guess the the piece around when a lot of people struggle when they start getting to grips with SEO and that's often the the concern and the worry that SEO moves quicker than you can keep up with and learn about. And it's always a big stumbling block for people. Like the thing I hear probably most frequently when I talk to people about SEO is like, Matt, how do you stay up to date with things? Google's constantly pushing out updates, things are changing, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. And the thing I always come back to here is that in like the past near enough 10 years now of me doing SEO, the the, the foundations on which SEO is built, the, the core underlying principles of SEO really have not changed that much. Um, and the the thing that has changed a whole lot is actually the, the people searching within Google and that's me and all of you here consumers and the way that we search, uh, has dramatically changed the way that SEO kind of like is, is seen, but more importantly, ultimately how the web has, has worked. And as a result, a lot of the focus in technological developments on Google and, uh, those other search engines, right? There are others like Bing, et cetera. Um, but primarily Google, why they have, uh, ran away with so much market share in English speaking markets is their advancements in natural language processing and natural language understanding. So a a good example I often give around this is the way that we search for a place to either grab food, lunch or dinner. Um, now versus how we did that even as much as like five to six years ago so if right I'm in London right now if I'm not from London don't know the area and I want to go grab some lunch uh, right now I may kind of just go into Google and search uh, via my mobile device or speak into Siri or into Google Assistant and just say where are the best places to eat right now right and like that's a very conversational query. It's something that five to six years ago, if you saw someone asking that into Google, you would think that they were very strange because the interpretation there is that you are speaking to a robot and you're speaking to them like a human, right? Uh, And that's not the way Google would work. Back then I would probably have searched lunch, restaurant, London, very much like speaking explicitly on a keyword basis. We, our our habits have changed. Voices shaped this, but so has mobile device usage. 2014 was the first ever time that global mobile device usage um, had eclipsed that of desktop. And it's worth not underestimating the impact that just a simple change of a device has on the way that we search and the way we think about searching as individuals. And that has a big knock-on effect onto SEO, um, where it ultimately the interface through which we are searching is the thing that's changed so dramatically, and is going to continue to. Voice search is a, a an incredibly fast-growing area of search, and as a result, like it's one of the reasons why every day I think it's something like. 14% of all of this the queries that were searched for in Google on that one day were net new queries, i.e., things that had never been searched for before. It gives you a, a kind of scope here of like the kind of things that Google's having to keep up with. Like how do you show results for something you've never had to show results for? And, and, and this is a big part of Google's introduction of more intelligent technology. So go back to, I think it was 2015, uh, Google made probably the most significant change, I say changed their search algorithm. They completely uh, overhauled their search algorithm and introduced what was called RankBrain, which um, many people called an algorithm update, but it was was much, much more than that. Um, Ultimately, this was Google's uh, biggest improvement to understanding and processing natural language so uh, very much cutting edge technology that enabled them to serve more relevant results that understood the intent behind what people are searching for so slight examples of this nuance right is i I said previously the restaurant example and that restaurant example completely revolves around Google being explicitly told what to return results for. Now, in the example of restaurants, London, right? Very, very clear. You have explicitly stated, I want to see restaurants in the geographic region, London, right? And that's a relatively simple thing for Google to understand. Now, where's the best place to eat right now is contains some explicit parts to that that query but probably 90 percent of it is all implicit so what i mean by that is right so where would define something explicitly that you're looking for um, a location of something of an entity right it is kind of implied that you are looking to find somewhere that sells food or that you can eat within Uh, best would imply a high rating but more importantly you haven't said the location so within this query there is a whole lot more that google's gathering for example your ip address and your location based on that they would also be looking at are you using a mobile device or are you on desktop if you're on desktop, you're probably going to be looking for, some, um, looking for something with a much longer time frame. So if you're looking for someone to eat lunch, then it may be like that you're doing this search in the morning. If you're using a mobile device and you're on mobile data... So you're not on Wi-Fi, which all things that Google will get as part of this query, uh, all the way through to the exact device type that you're using. Then it's like, okay, well, this probably needs to be walking distance for this person because they're on the move, using mobile data. They're going to kind of like narrow in the radius in which these um, restaurants that they're going to show are related, and they need to be open right now. You haven't explicitly stated any of these things, but Google understands it and can process and give you completely tailored language this was a big part of why in seo to kind of like bring this back the the focus on ranking for individual keywords become a whole lot tougher right because you you don't rank number 1 for where's the best place to eat right now because there is no universal number one ranking whether i search in even like here where i am right now or 1 mile away from here the results will be different so This is a big part of with SEO is understanding uh, in particular that Google's advancements and there's been an incredible, probably the biggest advancement in their natural language processing, which for any of you that follow news within SEO, you've probably heard um, the news around Google introducing BERT, which is um, probably one of the most complex and impressive advancements in machine learning driven natural language processing uh without getting into all the details like it's basically like rank brain i would say 2.0 but it's more like 10.0 uh, at this point and means that google can really understand the thing that the user wants without them having to say it even on a much 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 more granular level and that allows them to do things like show Featured snippets or uh, product carousels, et cetera. Um, so there's a whole lot that's kind of going into um, SEO nowadays, and much more of a focus on getting more and more and more and more and more granular with the content that you're trying to serve up and tailoring it to a much smaller group of, of, of users than before.
0: Cool. Very good. Um, thank you for the very detailed answer, Matthew. Moving on to the next one now. How do we, how do we increase our EAT? And maybe you can define or explain what it means. Um, how do we increase our EAT rating? And what impact will it have on SEO 2020 onwards?
1: Um, I'm glad this one was asked because similar to some of the things I was talking about before, this is where I think is probably the most misinformation in SEO, uh, right now. So where I was talking about previously rank brain and, uh, BERT being like huge algorithm shifts. The first thing I, I always notice when things like that come up is there are articles that talk about how to optimize for rank brain, how to optimize for BERT, or there'll be consultants that start all of a sudden selling like BERT optimization services. Right. And the reality is, you cannot optimize for those things. They are natural language processing um, algorithms that are just—it's like saying like optimize for Google, right? Like you you are doing that anyway. It's very very different from trying to optimize for a specific part of search or a specific element of an algorithm. Um, and where Eat came from, or which is an acronym uh, for expertise, authoritativeness, and trust. This came from um, Google's search rater guidelines handbook. What the search rater guideline handbook are it, it is for, and again, this is where a lot of misinformation happens, is for Google's uh, search raters. And what search raters are, are individuals that are contracted by Google to do manual evaluation of the search results pages. So, alongside their algorithms that they that they use to just kind of do QA and sense check certain things. They have a manual layer of individual people that will go in and just have a look and say, okay, this. Uh, they'll be served up random results. They'll go in and look at the site and say, should this be ranking here? They'll take those results back and it will become a very small part of the process through which Google will um, have a look at adjusting the results pages. But it's more often than not, not for just those individual searches. They often use this on a sample of thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. It goes in, um, and basically, Google's uh, search rating handbook that are given to each of these search raters to use as a guide, um, a big thing that they're always leaked. I mean, of course, they're going to be leaked out, they're PDF files. Um, And a big part of that was telling people how to determine whether a site actually uh, contains legitimate information. So how to avoid like scam websites, how to point out whether something is like fake news or not. And they do this with a rating system that they said is like, does it demonstrate expertise, the people or the brand that create this content? Do they have expertise in this area? And they'll give some guidelines on to how you might determine that. Are they authoritative in uh, that that area as well? And are they trustworthy? right? And the, again, they give little playbooks because the, you're manually going through a site. Now, what, what happens here is then this goes out into the SEO community and all of a sudden there are EAT experts and there becomes how to increase your EAT rating or your EAT score and why this is important. And if you have bad EAT, you're going to tank in the rankings i just want to clear up for everyone here this is not a thing to worry about this is also not a ranking factor regardless of what's shared online is categorically not a ranking factor there is even though i don't always trust like official statements from google there is official statements from google that further back this up but it also just goes against all the fundamentals of search. If this was a major ranking factor, Google would literally have to have hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people operating on this model and would defy the whole point of what their search engine is, which is a machine learning driven algorithm to understand language and provide results. If you're just having literally one-to-one people going through and doing this, that doesn't scale. Where this came in is for YMYL, uh, categories of sites. So your money, your life, which is basically a category that determines sites that are within areas that uh, are like health. So where misinformation can be really bad. Um, it can be like life coaching and uh, the those kind of general categories, right? So if you just Google your money, your life, you'll see a list of those kind of categories. Things where if misinformation at scale is spread and ranks really well in the search engines could be very dangerous getting bad health and medical advice is not something I would advise for your general health and Google surfacing that information is not going to help any of the searches so now where this comes into play if your site has a manual penalty that's been placed on it by Google and you are in the YMYL uh, category. This can sometimes play a bearing where you're getting manually reviewed and you're going through a reconsideration request. It is useful to still follow all of the things that Google is saying in terms of EAT. The thing that I would just say is you don't need to take these things as literal, right? Just to take this a step back, there is very rarely a case where you would build out content where you wouldn't demonstrate the things that Google is saying around like, first of all, you're never going to actively not demonstrate that you are an expert or an authority in your area, nor are you actively going to go against building trust with the people reading it. So my, my main thing in all this so that I can leave it, this is definitely, this is something that I have to talk about quite a bit. So I, uh, I know I'm almost going overboard here, but this is like one of the things where I get kind of fed up with all of the like eat consultants that do loads of stuff around this. Um, There are some minimum viable stuff that you can do on this level, but honestly, your energy is spent much, much better elsewhere. And thinking about eat as like a ranking factor is just the the wrong way to to approach this. That's all I'm going to say on that because I think that it's just an important thing to clarify because this is definitely one of the areas where there's a ton of misinformation. Cool. Well, thank you for
0: clarifying that indeed, Matthew. Um, A lot of questions were around benchmark as well. So here is one example. What are the benchmark expectations to uh, set uh, for a client after three, six, 12 months of SEO
1: activity? Okay. So benchmarking and more importantly, setting expectations is especially if you're selling SEO, uh, but also if you're operating within a company where you have to um, answer to leadership team or exec teams or just any of the uh, your, your direct reports where you have to basically build out a model for what can be expected from the inputs that you're putting into this. One of the things I would always say is that um, there is an element of unpredictability within SEO, but there is always a logical process that you can take to building out some kind of forecasts. Forecasts by their nature are guides and the more data over time that you have, the better those forecasts can become. When you are starting out an SEO project in terms of expectations for a client within the first three months, it's pretty rare, especially if you're starting something from scratch that they're going to see much in terms of tangible output of Like organic traffic gains, for example, unless you're taking over an existing site that has a bunch of quick wins that you can start tapping into. But the most important thing that I would say within benchmarking is that every single individual website that you focus on will be completely different from the next. There are so many variables that have to be taken into account to correctly start building out expectations like this. But there is always a few things that I tend to always do um, at the start of a project or midway through a project to start understanding this. So the the first thing that you want to do is building out a keyword opportunity model or like a a universe of keywords. And this is kind of like a a TAM analysis, like a total addressable market analysis. Um, And the goal of this is to understand, okay, over the next say 12 months, period of time. We're going to do really deep. uh, So right now I'm talking about, but you're looking over a timescale of 12 months. Over the next 12 months, we want to have a look at the potential addressable search volume that we could go after. And this requires a lot of upfront, pretty deep keyword research that you're going to start doing. And you probably want to bucket this out into varying groups, right? So like, what are some of the more transactional terms, the kind of things that people are going to be searching for that could turn directly into conversions. So this, let's use the e-commerce example, that's much easier in, in this uh, sphere to do this for is, okay, we're going to look at uh, product related queries, people searching for our product types and the categories from which they fall within. And we're going to get an extensive list of all of those keywords. The, the main head keywords really, and when I say head keywords, it's like the broadest adaptation of that term. So like, Red dresses right for example and then you start often adding in modifiers to that so you may have the brand name at the start if you sell multiple brands of red dresses etc you build out a big list of those transactional keywords you're not going much deeper than that to begin with then uh, you want to bring in like the more informational queries right like uh, like autumn winter. 2019 fashion trends, right? So you've got the, the more informational stuff, people that are not looking to make a purchase, but they're in, in the related topic area, maybe the more things that you would kind of class as like blog content. And you build out a big list of some of the core topics that you, you would assign to this brand and the queries that are being searched for within it. Uh, Lots of great tools that you can use to do keyword research. Um, So as a few examples, right, that I would pull out, there's uh, Ahrefs, a great SEO tool, Um, SEMrush, you probably need only one of those two. They're like competitors, they both do a great job, have great keyword research features. Um, Both paid for tools. Free tools, um, you've got answerthepublic.com, a free keyword research tool that you can start, especially for those informational searches. Uh, a new tool that's really interesting is also asked.com. Um, you can basically type a broad topic in, it'll give you a load of different questions that are related to that and subtopics great for throwing that into, um, into HubSpot as well. And then expanding that further. Uh, so a few things in there that you can start using. There's a keyword keg.com other like lower level keyword research tools. Um, that should be a good starting point. But what you're doing is when you've got all of these tool, uh, all of these keywords and you've mapped them out across like the different buyer journey, you're probably going to have a pretty large list, right? It's not necessarily saying these are all the things that we will rank for. It's These are all the things we could go after and that are hyper relevant to our business. Then what you want to do is get the monthly search volume for each of these keywords, which you can pull through from, if you spend a decent amount on Google AdWords, you can get it through Google's uh, Keyword Planner. You can put that into most keyword research tools and they'll be able to split out the the keyword search volume uh, on a monthly level. Then summing all of that up and you've got, okay, our total addressable like search volume on a monthly basis is 1 million uh, monthly searches. And then what you're able to say is, okay, we believe by like the 12 month mark, we'll be able to create enough content to go after, let's just say 10% of these, uh, these search queries. And that 10% equates to roughly a hundred thousand searches per month. Now of that, if we get say, page one rankings across like a decent portion of those, say 50% of all of those. And we start bringing through traffic. We're going to do some rough click-through rate analysis and we can model out to say, okay, we believe we're going to go from like zero traffic up to say 20,000 monthly visits per month uh, on like a mid range higher end. We may get closer to the 30 to 40,000 lower end. It may be the 10% 10 K mark. What you're starting to do is then you've got like kind of this um, this growth model where you've got like a lower quartile chart that you can start building and modeling out upper quartile, and then you've got the total addressable market on top of that. A great visual to start showing to clients, internal stakeholders, and also it means you can assign like key milestones that need to be hit along the way. We need to publish content around all these places pieces of uh these keywords sorry we need to have product pages with in-depth descriptions across all of these we want to have like review schema set up within each of them we want to make sure that we're doing like consistent backlink building um across all of this period of time to drive and build authority up so that we can start ranking so that would always be i would always come from like a data point of view go in with the caveats that like you're not going to be able to say exact numbers but giving that broad range and what the possible addressable market is Makes it so much easier then for a client to come back and say, well, you know, what if we doubled what we're doing? Can we go after a bigger slice of that addressable market? Or, you know, this isn't quite enough for us in this region. Like, you can come back with, okay, well, this is the input required for us to get to that stage. Um, so lots of things you can do with that. That's always the way that I would uh, approach a lot of that.
0: Go. Cool. Thanks a lot, Matthew, for the detailed explanation. Um, so th- you talked about this. A lot of questions were around um, building a link uh, strategy. How do you think this is still relevant
1: these days? Uh, so to answer the question directly, um, how is building a link strategy still relevant? I would say it is incredibly relevant. It's the fa- the foundation of SEO, right? Like, so... <clears throat> Link building is not only uh, the foundation of SEO, but it is the foundation of the web, right? The, The web works by pages interlinking between one another. And ultimately, this is one of the things that I said near the start where some of the foundations, the core underlying principles of SEO have not changed over the years. And one of those underlying principles is that Google determines the authoritativeness of a web page by the number of backlinks it has from other web pages now the thing that has changed quite a bit is google's ability to understand quality and not just quantity when i started SEO was a very different time and it was all about volume and it was about pumping in as many backlinks as possible into pages. Search results pages were much easier to manipulate uh, as a result because the relevancy of the pages that you got backlinks for and the quality of them really was not as much of a a core focus, uh, I would say. This resulted in like the proliferation of things like blog comments, spam, and things like that. But nowadays, like, Google is very good at this, and it's not just about volume. Your page could have 10 backlinks. Your competitor's page could have 100 backlinks, yet yeah, you could rank higher than them. And the reason for that is that Google looks at this, I guess, if I had to um, simplify this, in three buckets, right? It's like you've got the, the volume of links that you have, but which is probably the lowest in the list. The highest in the list is the authority of the links that uh, you get from other websites. So to, to not go down a rabbit hole here, but like, how many high-quality backlinks does the page that you're getting a backlink have and so on? And then the like semantic relevance of the pages that you're getting links from to your kind of page and what it's talking about. So, for example, if you are running a pet uh, e-commerce store that sells pet treats for dogs and dog toys, chew toys, beds, etc., getting a backlink from a authoritative financial services website is probably less valuable than getting a kind of, let's say like a medium level authority uh, link from a, another like pets blog, for example, the semantic relevance of the pages you're getting linked to is so much more important. We talk a lot about this and I, I published uh, an article way back in probably 2015, 2016 when first started kind of talking publicly around the topic cluster methodology that I'm sure many of you here live have probably read or at least follow that framework. And it all comes down to this same core principle. The, the topic cluster methodology, right, is much more focused around interlinking within your own website, but it's built on the foundations of like broader like the, the broader web google um still looks at how like much authority is passed from links internally within your website in the same way that it does for links passed from external web pages into your web pages and thinking about like topic clusters that like you would build out content in your site all interlinked around the same core broad topics well links from external websites you want to think about do they also fit within this kind of broad topic sometimes actually having a ton of backlinks from completely irrelevant uh topics can be more detrimental than they can be beneficial i wouldn't worry about that at this stage unless you're getting like serious volumes of backlinks. But when you're thinking about building out a link building strategy, getting it from relevant websites that kind of meet a minimum criteria of authority is really important. Determining authority of, uh, of websites is always a tough thing to do manually. There are tons of tools that at least give you a rough idea of this. Moz, Ahrefs, SEMrush, pretty much any backlink analysis tool you go in and they'll have their own version of like some kind of authority scoring. Moz is a domain authority and it's like a hundred point scale. Ahrefs, domain rating. Um, Majestic has like trust flow and citation flow. Uh, SEMrush has their own one, et cetera, et cetera. All of them are still estimates, but they're good guidelines to go on, um, so that that's that. That would be my, my broad advice. So in short, it's incredibly relevant, and in my opinion, always will be relevant. Cool,
0: thanks, Matthew. Um, is SEO going to be to become um, more irrelevant? with more paid ads in search uh, engine result page and how, uh, and now also Google gallery ads?
1: Uh, No, it's (laughs) it's not going to become irrelevant. And uh, the the reason why I say this is, um, I think the crux of what's being asked here is, uh, what I'm like reading between the lines is, are the, is the increase in paid ads going to negatively impact the amount of traffic that we're going to be able to generate from SEO, from organic listings? And the answer to that question is actually also yes. Uh, We're already seeing that. In fact, um, there was some recent jump shot data that was released, and they have uh, clickstream data which can look into stuff like this, that only... And I may be a couple of percent off on this. So just like give me, cut me some slack on this because I'm remembering off the top of my head. You know, something like 41.5% of all searches that are made in Google search engine result in a visit to an organic listing that isn't owned by Google. So if you think about that, right, of all of the searches that are made, many people assume that every search that's made results in a click. It doesn't. In fact, nearly half, I think it's like 49% of all searches that are made do not result in a click through to a website at all. And that's dramatically grown, especially on mobile devices, because of the likes of featured snippets, which are like what some of you may know as like answer boxes. Um, Some of like, you've mentioned Google gallery ads, but there's also a ton of like SERP features that you can see that give you the answer without having to make a click. But also then you've got what I said is like 41.5% of these go into organic clicks, not owned by Google. The rest of that are going to either paid ad listings or some organic ad listings from things like Google Flights, for example, um, Google Jobs. These are all organic listings that Google owns those web properties. So from 1,000 searches made for a search query every month, actually of that, Only around 400 or so of those searches result in a click to an organic listing. And then if you're not ranking number one, you're getting even smaller amounts, right? So within all of this, it does have a big effect. Mobile is where things are getting eaten up the most because as many of you have probably noticed since, I think it was March this year when they did it for the first time where whenever you had ads being showed in Google search, there were these big green labels that said ad and you could clearly see it was an ad and, slowly and surely Google introduced more ads and there was more green. And then all of a sudden one day they turn into these really small black little ad signs that you can barely see without squinting. And all of a sudden they're blended and look exactly like organic search results. So we're starting to see over time, especially in the past 12 to 18 months, the number of clicks per search happening going down and down and down and mobile is driving this heavily so i guess um so my, my answer would be it's absolutely not going to be um more irrelevant you're going to be squeezed a lot more that said if you're being squeezed by ads this is a time when you want to be thinking about should i also be um, pushing out ads along with my organic search listings, and they are that they're complementary uh, channels: paid acquisition and organic search. They're not, they're not enemies, right? And I think that that's the most important thing to think about. Which um, a lot of people, very much involved in in SEO for the long haul, uh, sometimes fall into the trap of thinking of paid as the opposite of of organic. It's very much a complementary channel uh, that you can think about. So that would be my my general take there.
0: Beautiful, thanks. Um, Now, how do you evaluate the competition and the possibilities that you have to reach the highest position within um, the
1: SERP? So um, this kind of falls into... The question we had as a follow on, really, from the question we had a couple of questions ago, which was around like setting expectation. So you've set the expectation with the client. You've showed them what the total addressable search market is for, for your, your business and what you can potentially go after. And you've said to them, well, you know, if we rank really well for this group of keywords, we may get X amount of traffic by X amount of time, for example. The next question you need to ask is, and what maybe the client may ask is, well, how feasible is it for us to rank for X amount of these queries within X amount of this time? This often comes to your ability to compete within this market. And every keyword has um, a differing level of difficulty to, to rank for that. But this is where you can start going in and getting a little bit more granular, right? So if you are trying to rank for a keyword that is usually the way things go, the more searches that a keyword has per month, the tougher it is to rank for it. There are always exceptions to the rule. And if you can find the exceptions, they're the real gold mines uh, within SEO. Largely, this rule applies. The reason why this rule applies is because the more search volume, the higher the traffic potential, the higher the potential profit, the more money other companies are willing to invest into ranking for it. Exactly the same way as with like uh, a CPM like basis with paid acquisition, right? Um, Now, the way that you can start evaluating this, the best way to do this is first of all, if. The, this, this kind of model applies whether you're a, you're a site that has existing traffic or you're a brand new site. It comes down to your authority within that topic. So the first thing is like topical relevancy, and then the next thing to layer in is authority. If you are, for example, as I was mentioning before, an online store that sells uh, pet products, more specifically for dogs, right? You have a ton of content that is already built out all around this this core topic. And you have backlinks from other like pet blogs, suppliers of pet goods, maybe uh, pet health and veterinary uh, care websites. You have um, authority within that topic, right? You start, the further you stray out of that topic trying to rank for keywords, the tougher it gets to rank for those keywords. But figuring out your ability to compete within your broad topic, and I mean that in a relatively broad sense, right, within the dog pet space in this example. The best way to do this is not necessarily using some expensive sophisticated tool. Is doing the thing that most people in SEO neglect, which is the most obvious thing, and that's Googling it, right? And by that, what I mean is Googling the keyword, seeing what, the, uh, what competitors rank right now, and having a look at a couple of things. So having a look at the general level of authority that those websites have. And again, you can use some of those metrics provided by both free and paid SEO tools to so get a general benchmark. And then how relevant those um, those websites are to this core topic. The sweet spot to hit is having a, a keyword that you're going after where one, you have a search results page on page one, full of not overly relevant um, websites and relatively low authority. They're the things that you'll be able to feel pretty good that you can go and do some damage within. Those that are made up by some of the big players in the space that have been there for a long period of time. The other big thing is if you track that search results page and you see that the listings don't change that much and they're made up by the, the big names like the Amazon uh, product pages, the, the, the top products that have been there and continue to stay there and, acquire, and have thousands of links pointing to those pages, they're much tougher to move off of. But what I, what I tend to try and do here is say, okay, right, if relevant, it's relevant and we, uh, we're going after, say, ranking one of our core product pages, how many backlinks does our core product page have right now? Then I look at the top, uh, 10 listings on page one, for example, top five, whatever you want to do. And just have a look at how many backlinks those individual pages, not the whole website, individual pages have run an average. And let's say on average, these pages have like between 20 and 30 backlinks. Right? So then I say, okay, well, my benchmark is how long will it take me to get to the level of having say 25 backlinks on this page? That's when I start to be able to put some kind of broad, rough timelines on things. Okay It takes my team roughly a month to build eight backlinks and we're doing that via like guest posting, we're doing it via like uh, partnerships, etc. and so as a result, what I think is it's going to take us roughly four months to get close to that level of being able to rank really well there you go. You've got a baseline target. You've got a baseline timeline and you can start modeling out that for a bunch of different key terms. And now paired up with your like total addressable market analysis, you've got both a potential opportunity and then you've got a competition based timeline. And what you want to do is like be revising this over time. How well did our forecast match our actual outcome? What was like the delta between that? And start adjusting like your, your ability to, to forecast. It will get easier over time because you'll get a general sense of how well that site or your client site ranks out of the gate for some of these keywords. And you can start to build off of that.
0: Great. Are we... Yeah, I thought we were getting into cluster topics now. Okay, cool. So, uh, second big uh, topic, how granular a cluster topic
1: should be? Um, so, the first thing I'll say is there's no like, one-fits-all approach here. Um, in, in, in all honesty, you should not necessarily cre- um, answer this question by focusing just on like all of the potential content you could create. It should be driven by either potential search demand or like potential conversion opportunities, right? And what I what I mean by that is, let's say we're going after this like broad topic of like, I don't know, um, pet products, right? We'll go back into this. Um, or let's even go one layer deeper than that, right? Like dog toys, right? from there, I could get incredibly granular with the type of content that I'm creating just by like blasting out a bunch of different ideas. Like I could probably create a list of a hundred different things that I could create. Does that mean I should create content all the way to that kind of level? No, what I need to do is like start from finding kind of like when I was talking about the, the total addressable search volume, start by building out like the keyword universe around this one topic, Right then what I'm doing is how many times are each of these terms searched for every month, right? And what is our minimum viable amount of search volume that we're going to look to capture for these, like this whole topic to make it actually worth our time for some of those where the topic actually may be something that converts really well for us, that search volume, like, um, benchmark may be much lower because we know we're going to get a higher conversion rate. We can justify on a revenue level or conversion level of some sort. On just a broad search for for awareness point of view, you need to just have a cutoff point where you say, well, this is just not viable for us to be going this granular because no one's searching for it. No one is going to discover it. The only exception to some of these rules, right, is where... Uh, search is not the primary function of why you're building out the content. Maybe there's customer support content. Maybe there's sales enablement content that you can share with the sales team to help close deals better. Maybe this is an emerging topic that you are anticipating is going to get more interest and demand over time. You want to be an early adopter, so you start building content right now to rank well later. That is the, that's the framework I would often give within building out content in topics uh, versus just... a a very granular thing of like people ask me like how many how many pieces of content should be in a topic cluster and like should it be four or eight that's not the way to approach it how big is the potential universe of keywords that are being talked about in this topic um and what's the potential search volume that you can go after um I remember having a big discussion of this inside Traffic Think Tank not that long ago. And everything that was talked about around this always came back to search volume. This is where actually I was first shared the tool, um, alsoasked.com, which I would highly recommend. I, I think it's like just like in beta right now. It's free. The, I would highly recommend you go and check out because um, it's super useful for answering this question um and can build out from a core topic so uh a really good one i'm sure that we can share out some links to everyone to to useful tools at the end of this as well
0: of course um okay on, on cluster topic as well i'm gonna ask that question because i got asked that question a lot would you rather start with the pillar page or with the subtopics
1: um usually so the way they tend to do uh and, and, and actually, to even take a step back, the reason why that I talked a lot initially around topic clusters with like pillar pages and subtopic pages is that the idea of the pillar page more than anything is to kind of be the the central uh, kind of part of a, of a topic that covers the broadest aspect of it, the Often, in the informational query uh, domain of this is like the overarching guide that uh, is focused on that core topic and can be a great conversion point sometimes like the pillar right of a topic cluster could be a product page if that's actually the the place where you want people to convert and you're building subtopics around usually, I would say start from that point that said like. This whole thing is not black and white like that. You could start by building out more informational stuff, and again, it, it, it comes back down to where is the most demand for information here? I think that like the beauty of building things in topic, topical clusters, right, as as, as we we'll, as we refer to them, is that you're just creating content around individual topics that all interlink to one another as you build more you, you interlink between the two creates a good user experience you're building real depth of uh semantic relevance around that topic in your website and also gives you a great way of pushing authority between uh all of the different pages involved cool thanks
0: question that was uh, asked a lot as well is there a perfect length for blog posts? Is it enough 600 words or is it better 2000 or is it not important at all?
1: Um, so it is very important the uh the length and format of a piece of content. What is absolutely not the case is that there is a one fits all perfect length for content. This is yet another um thing that is shared so frequently uh, in, in SEO. And um, I think probably over the years, I have been someone that has shared something similar um, many years ago when, it's, when you're talking about like individual search studies. If, um, if I pull a list of a million URLs and I, that are all ranking on page one, and they're primarily all for informational queries. And I did this, say, uh, a couple of years ago, and I plotted out the the word count of all of these posts. I would easily be able to draw positive correlation towards long-form content and page one rankings. Now, that does not mean all of your content should be long form content to rank on page one. And in fact, some of the things I talked about right at the start of this uh, session was Google being unable to understand the intent of searches and serve much more granular content as a result. I would actually say that one of the biggest shifts I've seen in the past, like 18, 24 months is um, that long form content is driving a lot less traffic and the reason for that is that previously we'd have really long form content three four five thousand word pieces and they would be focused around a broad topic so like pillar page content right uh, a lot of the time was said to keep that very long form it's not always the case now because what would happen is you would rank for this like really broad term and then you would rank for loads of like variations of that search term so someone searching for like Dog toys, or best dog toys, or kid-friendly dog toys, or dog toys for small dogs, right? This one big guide around the best dog toys, rank right, for all of those. Now what started happening is it ranks for say one fifth of those queries because Google is actually able to find those slight nuances in the the things that have been searched for and serving much more granular results that are much more tailored to that very, very specific nuance to the query. And this is one of the things that's talked about. You may hear this is that there's been a real increase in the number of unique search result pages. So, and what, what we mean by that is for that, that set of like 10 different queries, the same search results kind of showed for that. Now we see like different search results for every single one of those very similar uh, queries. And it means that longer form content is ranking for a lot less of that because it's less of a kind of one fits all. Similarly, sometimes short form content is not enough. I I guess the the best example that I always find, uh, and many of you here can probably relate to doing this at one point in time, of where long form content is terrible. And even like the whole thing of like, oh, well, you have to have content that's like at least four or 500 words, otherwise you can't rank is wrong. So you're sitting in the cinema, you're watching some form of superhero movie, right? And the end credits start rolling. And you are sitting there, you, maybe you're there with your partner or friend and you're going, I wonder if there's an end credit scene. And then you're like, do I sit through all of these credits to wait to find out if there is an end credit scene? And then you're like, also, do I just roll out of this cinema and then potentially miss something? So you very frantically pick out your cell phone. And you're like, right, I'm going to quickly Google this. Is there an end credit scene for... I don't know, Avengers Endgame, right? And then you get these results and you click on some of them and they're like 5,000 word memoirs that talk about the entire plot of the film and everything that kind of goes into it. You've got reviews and things about the characters and then right at the very, very bottom of this thing that's covered in ads is a no. And then by the time you read through the whole thing, the end credits are finished and you realized, right? And the, 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 the thing is, what you're starting to see now for queries like that, is that actually things like just the word no is able to rank. And I think the key thing to do here, and to kind of like really tie this together in what my advice is in this situation is, and it goes back to this, is Google it. You're trying to rank for some, uh, like a query, and you're determining whether you should write something that's a bit shorter, a bit longer, how many words, have a look at what's ranking there right now. The tendency across many things in marketing is often to say, let's look at what's happening right now and let's do something different. Let's make ours unique. Do not do that in SEO. This is often very counterintuitive, but the worst thing you can do is often in SEO is try and reinvent the wheel. What Google is telling you by showing you the first page of results is these are the exact things that our users want. This is how they want it and this is how we're going to rank things do and follow the patterns of the things that people are actually already ranking for. If the average word count of something in the top page of Google is like a thousand words, shoot for that. It's not like gonna guarantee you rank, but it's gonna give you like matching the right kind of uh, result that the searcher wants. And that's the goal of Google, right? And everything else then kind of follows in. This will be different for every query that you, you build around, but simply applying like a, we're going to do 2000 words for all of these could just be a massive waste of your time. um, And has no logic other than simplifying something for scale, which you're only going to end up like reworking in the future. It's also as a side note, a really good way to do a bit of a content audit. Um, I've seen countless like studies where people, case studies where people have had tons of really long form content. They've looked at the other competitors in the cert and they're actually they, they all have like a word count that's like a fifth of theirs. They've cut out like a uh, like four fifths of their content and actually ended up ranking way better, right? And that's not to say just go shedding out half of your content on everything you have. If you're starting to see that pattern in the search results, like it's probably a good thing to test out. So, good examples of of ways, and I know that we're pretty much at time now. Good examples of ways, though, that you. The, the, the biggest takeaway I'd like everyone to take from all of the things that we, that I've kind of discussed is really that there really isn't a one fits all that you can apply with content in search and you can learn so much from just Googling the thing that you're going and ranking for um, versus actually uh, just trying to take like uh, an approach of like, okay, we're going to put this into some like expensive tool that's going to tell us like, a, a one fits all kind of strategy like use common sense in in this piece and that common sense is delivered to you by google more often than not well
0: thank you very much matthew it was super interesting so on, on behalf of all the the partners who joined the, the webinar i i really wanted to to thank you um and for all the partners on the call we had around 80 80 people logging in um I'll send you the recording. I'll send you the yeah the deck, um, the recording after the call. Thank you very much again, Matthew. Uh, and thank you all for joining. Thanks everyone. Bye.